Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, I'm joined by Tom Doyle, acclaimed music journalist, author, and long-standing contributor to music magazines like Mojo and Q. Over the years, he's been responsible for some of our favourite interviews with Paul Weller and profiles with the likes of Paul McCartney, Elton John, Yoko Ono, Keith Richards, U2, Madonna, Kate Bush, R.E.M., and many, many more. As part of White Label, he has collaborated with Paul on various special songs and extra releases over the past six years. So let's dig into loads of lovely Paul Weller connections and his own work as well. Tom Doyle. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, really, really good to be on here, Dan. Oh, bless you. Um, it's not a bad lineup that you're joining, to be fair. The, the guest we've had on so far has been pretty good, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully getting closer to the end goal is the is the aim. Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Who would have thought I'd have absolutely. to do so much work just to get to that end point? <laughs> now, look, um, there's so much for us to cover, not least your life as a journalist and everybody that you've interviewed and everybody you've covered in your your work as a, in the music press and stuff so Christ knows how we're going to fit this into the time slot that we have um, as well as all the Weller connections and all that as well but let's kick off with when it was that you first discovered the music of Mr Paul Weller was it solo was it the jam was it the style council it was the jam actually I mean I was I mean I grew up in Dundee in Scotland and I was a punk rock nutter right when I was a kid I mean I'd sort of been a a complete Beatles head up until about the age of 10 11 uh, and so 77 and it was 10, 78, obviously 11. And the first time, I mean, I was thinking about this today. There's a few sort of scattered memories of the jam. Um, one of them is me and a couple of my mates at a birthday party when we were at primary school, actually, jumping around mental, right? To this is the modern world, the album. So that's a really strong memory. Uh, also, I remember, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Peter Cook 
the comedian had a, a sort of music show called Revolver on TV, yeah. right? and it was like a late night thing. And I remember seeing the jam on there too, and David Watts. So, and then, so it must have been that must have been seventy eight. And then I do remember buying Down in the Tube Station at Midnight, which was the only it was the only jam single that I ever bought because then my brother Brian, who's two years younger than me, he just became a jam. Style Council, Paul Weller, super fan. I mean, he really is. I mean, he's, I think he's been to see, I think he's been to see Weller over 30 times, maybe 40 times or something like that. But anyway, I didn't have to buy any of the records after that because he bought them. I thought you were so going to say, were, I, at that point, I decided I couldn't like them because he liked them. No, but I love the jam. I mean, I remember sitting, I remember sitting listening to the radio when Going Underground went in a number one. I mean, loads of memories of the jam. I mean, I never saw the jam, but I do remember, and I have talked to Paul about this, you know, the effect that the jam splitting had just when I'm doing, you know, I was at secondary school and I mean, there was like one kid crying on the bus and stuff like that to school. You know I mean? It was a, it was a big thing, you know, and obviously Paul remembers the Beatles splitting up and the effect it had on him. And I mean, obviously it's hard for him to get his head around this, but it did have that effect on my generation, actually. So, I mean, that was, yeah. I mean, so these records were there all the time as I was growing up. My brother bought everything. And I don't think I actually saw, no, I didn't. I didn't see Paul perform until the Style Council. Right, and uh, this is quite a good story actually, because by this point I was working on a teenage magazine in Dundee, and Polydor. I had said to the PR at Polydor, I said, "Listen, they're playing Glasgow Apollo." And as it turned out, it was the very last night of Glasgow Apollo. I think it was Bulldoze like two years later or whatever. And I said, look, is there any chance, you know, I could have four tickets rather than just two? And she said, yeah, I'm sure that'll be fine. And then she got back to me and I can't even remember her name or whatever. So I'm not putting anybody in trouble or whatever. But she said, listen, do you want all the tickets I've got? <laughs> and I think it was about 12 or 14 tickets, right? So suddenly, you know, there's a whole squad of us, right? All went through to Glasgow to see them. And I mean, there was people there. There was people in this squad that didn't even know who they were and all this sort of stuff, you know? Obviously, we were totally hammered by the time that uh, we got there and when, when they came on. So I can't really remember much about it. I do remember, I've sort of got a visual snapshot of my head of them on stage, but I can't remember anything about the Apollo and I do remember a stone's throw away. That's the one thing that I remember from that gig. You know? <laughs> and that's the only thing that I remember. I can't remember getting there. can't remember getting back. Were you not meant to write an article for the magazine? <laughs> nah, it was just a bit of a jolly. Here's oh, okay. the tickets. I mean, I think she was just being lazy and thinking, you know, either... I mean, look, their stock, as Paul accepts, was, was pretty low. I mean, mind you, not in 1985... No idea why, right? But uh, I do remember that, yeah, she just, I think she just thought I could get rid of all these tickets and I won her. And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a good jolly. <laughs> so I'm told, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, you're right. She can then just reject every other request that comes in, having done her job, got rid of them all, done, sorted. <laughs> yes. Um, so that, that love of writing uh, come from a very young age then. You just, did you know from the outset that that's what you wanted to do when you started thinking about a career then? Uh, I remember talking to a school's career dude in secondary school and I said to him, I either want to be a drummer or a writer. And he said, nah, both of those are too hard. And 
so I've kind of become both of them in a way, yeah. kind of, you know. So, I mean, I was a, I was a, a music obsessive, um, music press obsessive as well, you know, every Thursday. I mean, I could only buy one, so it was usually sounds because it was punk and heavy metal, which I loved at the time as well. Being 13, come on. So, yeah, I mean, being in Dundee, see, I was in loads of bands from about the age of 13. I was, I was just in loads of bands. I mean, I think by the time I was about 14, 15, I was drumming in about five bands. So that's really what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a drummer. The, uh, but obviously I was a music press obsessive and I was one of these sort of annoying guys who anything that they wrote in English class would end up in the school magazine and all that sort of stuff. So I kind of knew that I could do that as well. And then there's a publishing house in Dundee called DC Thompson and really being honest with you I completely fucked up my last year at school bunked off in the park stoned it and up you know so the, my options were narrowing quickly put it that way and this publishing house did like teen mags like Jackie Patches Blue Jeans and stuff like that and so I saw an ad in the paper or I think my dad did and he said you should go for this and so I did and I got the job and I started I mean there was a week in between me leaving school and starting this job I mean that was it and within about three or four months of being in there I was interviewing bands at 17 and then at 18 I started coming down to London and interviewing people uh, so I did that for four years I was 18 and interviewing like Talking Heads and The Cure and just amazing mind-blowing things but the actual job itself was drudgery it has to be said so I did the same as I'd done at school you know for the last two or three years in there I was stoned at my head in the fucking place <laughs> uh, and so it was all yeah my options were narrowing there again I found you know then I really wanted to move to London really for the music also looking back on it I mean I suppose being you know at that time I was living in a council estate in my teen years on the outskirts of Dundee like a really rough place and so it was about as far away from the centre or the London music scene as you can imagine and I just really wanted to get in the middle of it all is the truth of it and so I ended up with a job at Smash Hits in 1988 and I worked there in the office for two years and then as soon as I could go freelance I did and I had another band in London it was always parallel things basically mm. you know so I'm just basically being a chancer and seeing how far I could get is the truth of it. <laughs> I love it I love it you, that your, your options got so narrow you ended up at Q is basically what you're saying right? <laughs> exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> for 30 years <laughs> yeah a man alive I, I, I think I've said this on the podcast before I still miss that I miss the fact that doesn't come through my letterbox every month that was such a powerful music publication Q magazine wasn't it yeah and I mean it was so sad to see it go last year I mean and particularly I mean it had rough periods Q where it's direction well it was kind of directionless at certain points but I mean by the end it was really bang on point again and uh, Ted and the team there were doing a brilliant job actually and the enthusiasm for music and writing and stuff like really shone through but I suppose it's tough times I mean all the I mean we know it's tough times for print press and stuff like that and really I suppose Q was the last mainstream music magazine and now I mean the, the two magazines that I write for most are Mojo and Sound on Sound and those are both really if you think about it specialist magazines yeah. so I think it's a time really for specialists magazines and obviously both those magazines are doing a great job but yeah it's super sad super sad to see Q go I mean we were kind of expecting it for a few years and every time we used to go to the Q Awards we'd always go oh this will be the last one or this will be the last one and then obviously one year it was the last one and that's one of the things that I miss as well I mean I miss it coming 
I miss Q popping through my letterbox as well because I mean I was I'm a reader I'm a fan you know it's like I'm a Mojo reader as well as a Mojo writer and the fact that Q doesn't pop through the letterbox is sad but then the guys have done uh, have moved on to do the new Q the newsletter which anybody listening should definitely check out and subscribe because it's really good it carries on the spirit of particularly the front section uh, or the magazine and it's it's great for recommending stuff and there's a Spotify playlist you know every week and stuff like that so you can actually listen right. to what the writing about I didn't know, you know, I didn't know so, about this I'm going to have to dig yeah, into this I didn't know the new Q C-U-E yeah it's brilliant okay. Oh, cool. Okay. And I'm guessing it was through Q Magazine that you first come across Paul Weller. So, yeah, writing for magazines of the witch. Yeah, Paul's coming back as well with the solo career. I'm guessing you're still a fan at that point. Massively, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I did buy Into Tomorrow, actually, the Paul Weller Movement 12 Inch. I did. I heard it on Gary Crowley. He played it on GLR. I remember just thinking it was brilliant, you know, because it, it sounded really modernist, you know, with that groove and stuff, you know, and it was obviously, it was loop based and stuff. And it was just, you know, the sentiment and stuff like that. I mean, I just, I, I loved it. But you know this, I didn't actually, I never interviewed Paul until 1999 uh, for a section in Q called Cash for Questions. Oh yeah, was, I would have read it. I remember. That's when people had to send in their questions to Paul and you got a fiver or something. Was that right? 25 quid, maybe. You was it? Five Come on, yeah, it was twenty five. Oh yeah, no wonder it went <laughs> Well, between me and you and the doorpost, we can now reveal that probably half of them were made up by the staff, yeah. you know, because it was a perfect opportunity, right? To basically, you know, I mean, obviously, if you turn up and you're doing an interview and you ask a difficult question, that's you asking a difficult question. But if you turn up and you go, well, no, it's Peter Brooks from Ealing here, you know. Yeah, just made up. Ask anything you want. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, and it really literally was. You know, it was perfect for uh, doing difficult people because it really was. Don't shoot the messenger. So I did some amazing cash for questions. I mean, I did one with Keith Richards. I did Lou Reed. I did Brian Ferry. I did John Lydon, and it was great to sort of brazen this out. It's like, look, mate. You know, I mean, I'm just. I didn't even pick these questions. I didn't even pick these questions. <laughs> So you could ask really full on things. Anyway, so I did one with Paul in 99 and it was funny, man. I mean, he's, you know, straight away funny dude, you know. And also, I remember him sort of lighting a fag at the beginning of it and going, let's fucking get it done then, you know, which was completely, you know, he was talking my language. I just wanted to get it done and get out there as well, actually, being honest with you. But it was yeah. very funny and quite illuminating. I mean, I've not read it for years, but I, I do remember him saying stuff. I mean, somebody asked the inevitable jam question. And he was quite short about it, which was interesting. You know, I said, as a follow-up, do you not even hang out, never see them or whatever? And he was like, nah, I wasn't even mates back in the day, mate, you know, that sort of thing, yeah. Which is weird because, I mean, obviously him him and Bruce have, you know, worked together and everything since then. But I suppose at that time, maybe late 90s, I mean, would you really want to get asked that question? And he's never going to do it. So why do you even bother? As he still gets asked that now, another, you know, what, 20, 20 plus years later? Well, it's just everybody's wasting their time. He's yeah. never going to do it. Forget it. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about music as well from you. So um, you mentioned this kind of these these parallels. The room you're in looks like some kind of studio as well. So we've got a massive piano. We've got a drum kit in the background there as well. So this is where you make your own magic. Yeah, I'm guessing. Well, mud. Yeah, make my own mud. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, this is probably with me and Anne Brown, who the pair of us have been working together for about 30 years, actually, as various different things, but I mean, obviously as white label these days. Yeah, we've had various studios, all called Scabby Road, right? So we had Scabby Road 1, which really was Scabby, Scabby Road 2, slightly less Scabby, uh, and I suppose this is Scabby Road 3, which is just basically the loft in my house. You know? right. But yeah, this is where it's all done, because I mean, these days you don't really need a studio. I mean, even you used to use it for things like recording drums, you know, but I've got an electronic drum kit here, which can trigger, you know, basically sounds that were recorded in Abbey Road or sounds that were recorded in American studios or whatever. So, I mean, the versatility is unbelievable, really. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is where it all happens or doesn't. (laughs) <laughs> and now talk to me about the connection with Paul around music so yeah, there's your journalism and your career there and interviewing him but at some point obviously the link happens between you working together and collaborating together so I'm aware of Stolen Voices which was this project in 2011 which I don't even know how you managed to do this is this a legal thing or not <laughs> should we talk about this I don't know but this is basically where you, you get these lyric, uh, these vocals rather from people like Bowie and Lennon and the Supremes and create like remix and full like arrangements with these vocals how did that come about and yeah how did you manage to get away with it <laughs> I don't know how we got away with it but um, yeah it's a bootleg remix album isn't it you know because I mean people weren't particularly interested in us being a duo with me singing so the idea was let's do what we're doing but have David Bowie singing or Neil Young you know, I mean, it's one of those things in music, you sort of give up for a wee while and then an idea sparks you back into action. And so that's really what it was. It was kind of, let's do this for fun. And then sort of, I mean, we did put it out to radio and stuff like that, but we made sure, obviously, that we never made any money out of it. And we did... Uh, press up some vinyl and stuff like that but then it started getting bigger you know there was more attention and stuff and there was once I mean basically what happened was Lauren Laverne was sort of championing it on uh, Six Music and they would sort of giggle and go I don't know if we're allowed to play this stuff and the truth is no Uh, (laughs) but then it was the other thing about it that we were always careful about it wasn't like we were taking like Lady Madonna or whatever you know it was always even if, if it was famous artists we always made sure that it was either songs or tracks that had never been officially released. So we're actually doing a bootleg remix album of bootlegs. Mm. You know, so like Child of Nature by John Lennon from the Isher Beatles sessions. At that point, that hadn't been released, you know. I mean, the Bowie track that we did, uh, Tired of My Life, which was from 1970, and it's just a demo, home demo, basically, and it's still never been released, you know, still to this day. So yeah, we've done that, but I mean, the connection with Paul was actually pretty funny, right, because I think, so I said 99, I'm trying to work at the dates here, 99, then some years later, I mean, it could have even been 10 years later, uh, I'm at the Mojo Awards and the awards are in progress and I nipped out for a smoke and in the, the smoking yard was just me and him and I thought we were sort of opposite ends of the smoking yard and I thought I better say something because otherwise it's a bit weird you know because I, mean? I did interview me might remember but usually people people don't remember whatever you know so I just went I went all right Paul I'm Tom interviewed you for Q and he went oh yes uh, you're that geezer that gave me the vinyl and I said oh yeah and I was thinking, what does he mean? I never gave him any vinyl. I was thinking, what? You know, and then he started going, yeah, you still at it then? And I was going, yeah, well, and I think I can't remember. Yeah, at that time, I think we were just starting stolen voices or something like that. Right? Anyway, it was a couple of days later when I realised, I was like, shit, I did give him vinyl. And we were in, me and Ant at that point in 2000, right? Around about the time that I'd interviewed him, had done an album on Grand Royal, you know, the Beastie Boys label and we were called electric music aka which is a shite name <laughs> uh, but that's what 
her name was at that time and the album was called North London Spiritualist Church which is a mouthful but it was a good album title I thought and it was a good cover and stuff like that because it was the cover was a spiritualist church that was actually around the corner from our studio you know so it was a, it all tied in and blah 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 anyway I had given them this final and it is one of the things that maybe some of your other guests will say about Paul is that he has got him at like a mind like steel trap and so I didn't I mean obviously I didn't see him again for quite a few years and then I went to do a mojo piece with him in the 100 club right? and we were doing the photo session in there with uh, Tom Sheen the legend that is Tom Sheen the photographer and as soon as I got in there he was like yeah Paul's like yeah you're right man and I was like do you know what I said see last time I saw you and you said I'd given you vinyl I was thinking what the fuck's he on about you know and then I realised he's called yeah yeah all goes in there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> in there. <laughs> and then he said Again, so you still at it? And it was like, yeah, yeah, I'm actually. I said, we've just done this thing, uh, stolen voices. So I had to go and see him again, maybe about a week or two later or whatever, down in Portsmouth. So yeah, I took him down. Uh, and then the next morning he texted me and he was like, this is great. He said, do you fancy doing a remix? So that's how the connection happened. And obviously, it was like, yeah, man, you know what? An actual legitimate remix, you know, that yeah. we don't have to pretend is legal. <laughs> uh, and we'd been doing legitimate remixes at that point as well. I mean, that's one of the strange things is that Hannah Peel and Erlen Cooper, they were in a band called The Magnetic North and we'd already done a remix for them and various other people. And so these things all ended up on our second white label album, which is called Borrowed Voices. So you see what we're doing there. You see, there's like a thread. <laughs> But, uh, it's almost like there's a plan, isn't it? Wow, are you kidding? <laughs> and Paul Wellis on that as well, isn't he? Paul Wellis on that as well. So let's go through these. So Saturn's Pattern came out in the May, and then I think it was around December time we got this EP, Saturn's Peak, which was a new track crossing over, and then remixes of things like Pick It Up and Saturn's Pattern and um, and Phoenix, which we'll come back to in a sec. But there was this version of Going My Way from White Label, this remix, and you'd kind of isolated quite a lot of the vocals. It sounded, dare I say, almost more beautiful I think than the original I actually ended up listening to that more often because it sounded like a I don't know it just how did you approach that as a, as a remix uh, well you know what actually when he said do you want to do a remix I said uh, well why don't you send us the stems for two tracks just thinking we might fuck one of them up or <laughs> it might not be very good there is always that thing it might not be very good so he sent us going my way and I can't even remember if I'd requested Phoenix I can't even remember how it worked. But anyway, we ended up with the stems for both those. So really, the, when we do a remix, we'd generally just request a cappella lead and back vocals. Sometimes if there's certain elements that you think, you listen to the track and you think, mm, you know, I mean, we might incorporate this or that, uh, maybe strings or brass or whatever. But I think we go in my way. When the stems came through, there were some parts where Paul had been playing piano as he did the vocal. They were on the same track, basically. You know, so it's the Beatles style thing, you know, I mean, we were used to sort of filtering out things, right? To try and isolate vocals when we were doing the bootleg remixes. But with this, because the piano part was so nice and stuff, I thought, well, no, we'll, we'll work with these parts that I've got the piano on them in one way and then the acapellas and the backing vocals and blah, 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 we'll work with them in another way. And I think with that track, I mean, I think we remix for us, we always try and think about what's the direction rather than just sort of blindly run into it and try mm. slamming down slap bass and... <laughs> 
<laughs> jazz fusion drums and going, yeah. <laughs> actually, this is crap. Uh, so with that one, I remember thinking it would be brilliant if it was a sort of late 60s, kind of zombies-ish kind of fantasia, basically, you know. And so it was really good fun. I mean, obviously, it's brilliant, like, setting working ways, vocals and stuff like that. And, I mean, there was loads of really great wee bits. I mean, there was a bit at the end, I seem to remember, where um, you could hear them on the original sort of counting down, you know, like a space oddity thing. I was like, why is that at the end? Let's get it at the beginning, you know, so that he's counting into the first change and stuff like that, you know. So, I mean, that one, yeah, I mean, it really worked, actually. I think, I mean, I hadn't listened to it for ages and then I listened to it this morning obviously because I knew I was going to be talking about it and yeah it worked really well that one actually didn't it yeah there's it's lots lovely. of little, it's little lovely. yeah, really nice. yeah, really yeah nice. I sort of forgot half of the stuff that was in there <laughs> yeah and I'm not sure I've revisited the EP very much apart from that track since then I'll be honest with you but yeah, so that, that track really stands out it's lovely well um, I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm probably trying to get the other people on as guests so I really shouldn't say that should I? But, yeah. so the, you got Phoenix at the same time because that turns up on your board voices remix so LP, doesn't it? There's a track called Paul, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, with the uh, stolen voices and borrowed voices things, just, uh, you know, obviously it was about anonymity and stuff like that as well for us, but also a kind of guessing game for the listener, you know? So with the stolen voices thing, it really was, it was just every track is just the first name of the singer, right? So, I mean, on the first one, it's like, you know, there's Gene 1 and Gene 2, and then there's David 1 and 2, I think, is there on that one? No, John 1 and 2, that's right. So, with, yeah, Phoenix would just become Paul under that sort of structure, right? But, yeah, I mean, we did both those tracks at the same time. We did Go My Way and Phoenix at the same time. I think, just talking about that direction thing again, I mean, Phoenix is almost like a house track, I think. You know what I mean? It's like really up-tempo and stuff like that. I mean, it's really full-on. And so, I mean, we are sort of the down-tempo stoner kids, you know, or no kids, but uh, would. I definitely thought this could be like a great sort of real hazy summary, almost Isley Brothers type vibe, you know? And I mean, at that time when we were doing the remixes, there was three of us. There was me and and our long-time pal Steve Ongle, who is another guy from Dundee who lives in Berlin, who's an amazing keyboard player and, you know... I mean, he's just amazing. And he would wanted to concentrate on the remixes so... And, as time went on, actually, you know, he didn't want to get into writing with people, you know. But at this point, what I would do would be I would just put a really, really simple beat on something. This happened with Go My Way as well. This is how both of them worked. Really simple beat on it. Sort of give him a slight direction or whatever, but give him no chords whatsoever, right, on the track. So because he's just great and actually a proper musician, right, he can sit there and reinterpret the chord structure or imagine a chord structure. I mean, Paul actually did, did say at one point, he says they're not like remixes, they're like reimaginations or reimaginings, which is definitely what it was, you know, and that's that's how that worked really, because Steve didn't, he'd never hear the original track until the end, and it was always, and Anth neither actually, and uh, it was always really good fun to work on this thing for a I mean, you'd be working on it for weeks, months sometimes, and then go, and here's the original. <laughs> <laughs> what was the reaction from Paul when you shared those back to him? Yeah, he loved them, actually. Yeah, 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 he did. Yeah, he loved them. I mean, it was amazing, isn't it? I mean, really, um, it's one of those things. I mean, you can't think too deeply about these things because you get too self-conscious, you know. Yeah, he did love them. He loved mm. them, actually. Yeah, he called me up and he was buzzing about them, actually. Yeah, he was completely buzzing about them. And so he, he said, I only want to use one of them. And I said, yeah. 
or instead, I think it wasn't even I would only want to use one of them. It's like, we'll only use one of them. And I said, so can we have the other one for our record? And he was like, yeah, cool. You know, so, so that's how that worked, basically. Yeah. Brilliant. And um, am I right in thinking around this time for Q Magazine, you got to go to New York with the guy as well? That's right. Yeah. That was a bit after those remixes, actually. Yeah. Because that was around about the time we were doing Moving On, actually. Now, I don't like to suggest, right, that uh, I was there on a jolly and I was not there for work or money. Yeah, it was a live review. You don't get paid a lot for a live review, even if it was a, it was a big live, live review. It was like a four-pager or whatever. Yeah, it was just a jolly, really. I just wanted to go out there. And when he was playing two gigs at Irvin Plaza, which is quite a small place, actually. I mean, I think it's probably a couple of thousand, maybe even less. Yeah, it just sounded like a big laugh. And it was a top laugh, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it was really good. Yeah. This was well, So this was pre true meanings right so this was around was this kind revolution tour would that be right yeah it would be yeah 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 and we've done a remix for kind revolution as well um yeah hopper yeah right there's a story about that actually which is pretty funny right so paul had sent his text and said i've finished the new record uh do you want to come down to the barn and check it out come down with ants right so we went down and he said yeah i wouldn't mind you doing another remix of this one he said choose you know have a listen see which one you think you know and you know what uh playbacks are like i mean it's like huge speakers blaring you know etc and being slightly discombobulated at the end or I said well look you know you gave us two last time you know I said we'll do them on spec I said why don't you like do the same and I'd said to him I can't even remember which numbers I'd said something like give us two four six something like that you know because I didn't know any of the titles or whatever right? so when the track came through it was the wrong one Right, it wasn't one of the ones that I'd picked, right? And actually, maybe it was one of the ones that I'd picked, and I'd got the numbers wrong because I think on that album is Hopper Six, maybe. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, because this is it, it is number six, so I remember. Yeah, yeah. go. So I'd got it wrong. <laughs> Right, I'd got it wrong and he got it right. Mind like a steel trap, right? So he'd obviously gone two, four, six, right? Uh, so when it came through, I was like, shit, 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 you know, because it wasn't a, one of the ones I'd sort of been thinking about the other ones and thinking, yet again, direction, which direction can we go in? So when I got the acapella through, it was like, you know, because it's a lovely track hopper, but it's kind of, where'd you go with a remix, you know? Uh, we'd had this idea for a while of doing, basically, right, we'd been up to see Grace Jones up at Ali Pali, me and Ant, and we said, she's not groove she uses that in quite a few tunes we should nick that groove actually you know so it was the idea was to do a sort of sly and robbie you know because it's like private life or walking in the rain and stuff like that you know so what i did was immediately like put this acapella paul's into the program and put a beat up and a bass line and sped up the vocal just to see if it worked and I mean, this took like 20 minutes, you know, because it was a shit, shit, shit. Because I'll always feel a wee bit lost if there's not a direction, you know. Mm. And that's one of the things about making music. If you know where you're going, it's pretty easy, you know. And you've just got, that's where the, the perspiration comes in. It's the inspiration, man, that you need. So, but that one, actually, I did listen to it again this morning. That one turned out really good as well, actually. Yeah. And it was that sort of Sly and Robbie compass point thing, which, you know, me and Ant have revisited again, actually. You were just really big fans of that sort of era and Sly and Robbie and stuff you know so so yeah that we've done that even though it was the wrong trousers um <laughs> you're up against i wonder who got first dibs then was it were you first in the room maybe because we, we got we've got villagers we've got uh the band toy we've got i mean stan's done a few remixes sid arthur Erland and the Carnival, the Woozy Mama, which is a track that I was talking about with Hannah Peels on strings on that with Erland Cooper. I wonder what the pecking order was. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Bound to be us first, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Obviously, <be>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, you mentioned moving on. Uh, so this is 2018, True Meanings, the album that comes out, which is, I mean, you get a proper co-write, co-produced by White Label track on there, Moving On, which, where is it? It's here. This is, I mean, this is such a beautiful LP, isn't it? I mean, even just the artwork, the cover of That's this amazing. thing. Yeah, it's yeah, an incredible cool. album. How did that come about? How did you get to actually, you know, be working and collaborating on a song that goes on the main LP? It was after the Hopper remix, and he sent me a text saying, do you fancy doing a co-write on the next record? It was like, yep. Uh, obviously, total buzz. And so, I mean, it was kind of interesting, actually, because we sort of worked similarly to how we'd done the remixes, but obviously not working from stems or an existing track that had been done for a record. He would just, I mean, a lot of the ways that he works is, I mean, he tends to write late at night a lot of the time, or it is in my experience anyway. I think, you know, the life of a touring musician who's somebody who's been doing it 40 odd years or whatever, I mean, they do tend to switch on later, don't they? You know, so I would get a, a lot of texts late night you know, with voice memos, but just really uh, rough ideas and stuff like that. So there was, we batted a few of them forward and back there was probably about two or three that we were sort of working on I was thinking this could be good this could be I mean moving on started because he had that sort of riff the opening riff that goes through the verse and stuff like that and as soon as me and I heard that we were like yes we know what we're doing with this right because the most of what we do is kind of we've got a few strains you know and so psychedelic soul or that late 60s sort of trippy vibe but uh, another thing that would really big fans of Jimmy Webb and you know that late 60s early 70s sort of style of I mean, you can take an Elvis and all that sort of stuff as well, you know, with the sort of really haunting strings and just that lonesome vibe, you know. I mean, there was just a really brilliant strain of songwriting going on in California at that time. And so straight away, even from these two chords, we could hear it. It was like, you're right, this is it. This is the way to go with this one. So, yeah, we built it up. That went forward and back, I think. It's hard to remember, but it did go forward and back. And then what happened was we got it to a certain point as an instrumental. And then when I went to New York on that trip, I mean, I was just off the plane, went to the dressing room or whatever and then, you know, he, he started blasting it out, you know, on the Bluetooth set up in the dressing room and stuff, which was pretty surreal it has to be said actually, I mean, especially when you just get off a flight and stuff, it's all pretty weird anyway, you know uh, Steve Carrot's coming up and going, what's that sounding? You know, it was really cool, I mean the, the band and everybody that watched me, Paul, they're all ace, you know, and they make you feel really welcome, but yeah, that was, a, that was quite a weird moment actually, and then the next day we were at you know that Stephen Cole Bear, I think is it the late show or whatever? Uh, like yeah, yeah, really yeah. Big like show the there. So the band were yeah. doing it and stuff like that. And it's pretty funny, you know, because it's just, you know, there's smoking banners everywhere, isn't it? You know, but uh, certain uh, musicians, you know, they're just they don't give a fuck, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I could smell like that he was smoking in his room, in his dressing room. So I stuck my head around the door. I was like, oh, I'm coming here for the smoke. And then he pulled out of his bag the lyrics to moving on, actually. So I don't know if he'd written them before or overnight or. You know, no idea. And, you know, and he sort of said, you know, have a look at these, see what you think, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, it was ace. And obviously you can tell that there's a sort of universal aspect to that song as well as a, a personal aspect to it. And then, yeah, when we got back, I mean, that moving on was all done remotely, actually. And then he put the vocal on, he put some guitar and piano and stuff like that on. 
And it was pretty easy, that one, actually. In recent weeks on the podcast, people have talked about this kind of brush strokes of Paul and almost uh, like a painter layering things up. And that's definitely one of those songs where when you look at the cast list on that song, there's so many different layers being added yeah. on. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. You, and you can hear that through. It's such a lush arrangement and such a lush, yeah, a beautiful song, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, Hannah's amazing, right? Because I mean, obviously this this happened, we're moving on and it happened with Glad Times as well. I mean, string sounds, you know, that you can use at home and stuff like that are good these days. I mean, they're pretty good, right? So we would put string parts on things, on particularly on those two tracks, we put string parts on things. And then basically what she does, what she did with both the tracks, listens to them, decides which bits she likes, which bits she doesn't like or whatever. And usually she's picking up on sort of melodic motifs or whatever in both those tracks. That's definitely what happened. And then she basically just pushes them up and makes them sound ace and, you know, conducts them. And, you know, it's, I mean, what she does is incredible, really. So yeah, no, that track turned out really good. And I think one of the things I mean, what I've learnt from working with him, I suppose it's, you know, we can get a wee bit nitpicky and I'm not saying he's not, but it's all about forward motion. That's for sure. He's not one of these artists who will sit there, not to say that he's never done this, right? But he's not one of these artists who will sit there getting massively frustrated by, you know, something not sounding right or whatever. Because, I mean, there are a lot of procrastinators out there in the world of music, aren't there? And yeah, one of the things that, I mean, I've definitely learned from him is like, it's all about the vibe. Get it. If you know where you're going with someone, just push forward fast. You know what I mean? Get the vibe down and Bob's your auntie. It's incredible, that album, because there are so many co-writers on it. And yeah, it sounds like, to me, like his most personal album yet in terms of the catalogue, which is which is remarkable. But yeah. um, and moving on definitely stands out of that, you know, it really is an incredible thing. So yeah, so since then, we've had True Meanings, we've had the other aspects, live album and gigs, which was, again, was brilliant. We had On Sunset last summer, which was a real treat and a proper sunshine album. And then this year, what a surprise, Fat Pop comes around. We get, I mean, God, this hit rate and this kind of... this. This productivity from the man's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, it's his job, man. I mean, <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yes. It's his job, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it, I mean, I did actually interview Damon Arburn last year about, and said something similar. It was nothing to do with Paul. And I said, Oh, you're not slowing down, are you, Damon? You know? And, and he went, why would it slow down? He says, you don't turn around a bricklayer and say, oh, you're not slowing down building those walls, are you? It's just like, you know, you're a bricky man. You get up in the morning and you lay bricks, you know? So, I mean, I think there is that thing that it's, yeah, it's his job. He's got his own studio. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it's workmanlike in any sense because, I mean, obviously it has to be inspired. You definitely feel that work ethic though, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. You'll be down there five days a week. Mm-hmm. So, and, and if you're thinking about it in that way, then to make an album a year, then doesn't it seem really that incredible, does it? You know, because it's just, that's what you do. And then yeah. you go out on tour and you play them, man, you know? So. Yeah. I remember listening to, so the album came out, when was it? July? And I remember Tim's Twitter listening party. I don't know if you follow these things. So, um, which has just been a lockdown savior, hasn't it? Been absolutely fabulous. But, I've seen quite a few of them. Yeah. 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 Um, so good. And there was a quote from Paul talking about Fat Pop, which was the listening party. And he, and he said about Glad Times, and he said, basically, he said, and I'll read it for you. He said, they sent me the backing track probably two years ago, so it's taken me this long to finish it properly. They're a very talented team, and I'm hoping we'll do more music together. So Glad Times was the first song, if I remember rightly, was it was it the first song we heard from Fat Pop? Certainly it was the it was the one on Later with Jules Holland that we saw, wasn't it? And this, Yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I mean, yeah, so how did that come about then? So you created something, a, a sample or a, a tune that you sent to him how did it work we had I mean we're always writing tracks and 
sometimes there'll be one where you go, you know what, I think well I didn't like this one. Uh, and that was the case with that. Uh, and sent it over. And do you know what? It was quite, I think it was quite long, the track. And it was quite meandering, actually, you know, because it's the, it's the same course basically all the way through, pretty much. And, you know, so it kind of ebbed and flowed, this track, you know, and he started putting ideas down on it. And they were sounding brilliant, man. But then I suppose the structure of it wasn't clear. So I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't end up on on Sunset. Uh, it would have fitted on that album as well, I think, actually, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it went forward and back and forward and back and forward and back. And then finally, he said, look, I think we need to finish this together. So we did, that was one that we actually, everything else had been done remotely. For that one, we did two days, all of us together, down at the barn. And it, that was really interesting in a way because, it, it, you know, I mean, obviously they've got their team, right? With Stan, Paul and Charles. And so a couple of interlopers coming in. You're not quite sure how this is going to kind of work. But it worked immediately, actually. It has to be said. And even Charles said that at the end of the night. He was like, I wasn't sure how this was going to work, but it worked great, didn't it? You know, so. And that's exciting because, I mean, put it this way, we'd played enough on that by that point, right? So it was a case of just going down there and chucking ideas at things, you know, and vibing him up, basically, you know, because, I mean, Stan has said that as well, that one of the things that's great about Paul is that he just wants to play, 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 you know, so you'll, you'll be going from, let's try this idea, let's try that idea, you know, so he's moving for the piano or the guitar, you know what I mean, the synth, and, and then obviously, because of the wonders of modern technology, you can chop arrangements around. So there was a lot of that, you know, how's this tune going to work, you know? So we did two days with that, and that was basically, I mean, I think it was done. At what time did you hear the words? When was it that the, the, the lyrics kind of come into this? The lyrics were sort of forming by, I would say, the second version that he sent to me. But by the time we were down in the barn, the lyrics were done. So when you get these lyrics about, you know, I'm going to read some, so I just don't know what's happening here at all. We, we go for days without a words, without a kiss both looking for something that we miss. When you get these lyrics, is there any part of you who wants to go, where's this come from? What's this about for? Is this about the missus or what? You know. <laughs> well, if I was interviewing him for Mojo, I'd probably ask, but if I'm in the studio, there's no fucking way I'm going to ask, you know. <laughs> I mean, well, it was pretty clear that it was personal and stuff like that. So if someone, if somebody's expressing something personal and a lyric, you know, you know, I'd be digging them in the ribs going, oh, what's this about then, mate? Yeah, what's yeah, yeah. About? yeah, it's really personal. One of the things that's funny, actually, is that I suppose through, you kind of... When I'm interviewing people, I often forget that they are who they are. It's quite a strange thing, actually. And so not to name drop or whatever, but, you know, I remember there was one time I was interviewing Paul McCartney, right? And then he suddenly said, well, you know, when we made Sgt. Pepper, no, and honestly, I just thought, fucking hell, right enough, you're, you're fucking Paul McCartney, aren't you? You're in the Beatles, aren't you? Because you forget. You absolutely forget. And it's a bit, it was similar when we went into the studio because you're just having a crack. I mean, we obviously have worked with loads of different people down the years, singers and different musicians and all this sort of stuff. And so you'd absolutely forget, right, that it's Paul Weller. And then this was the funny thing, right? I remember him going, right, he was like, Charles, I'll try a vocal. And he went in and started singing. I was like, that's fucking Paul Weller. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody noticed this. That's fucking Paul Weller, man, you know? (laughs) So that was one of the surreal, you know, and and then that door closes again after, you know, 30 seconds or something. (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. It's also (laughs) interesting that you say, like, you know, bits of it were worked on before uh, for on, like, around on Sunday. 
sunset time as well, because in a way, there's almost there's there's references that you feel are linked to what we've gone through with COVID and lockdown, the glad times around the corner as well. But I don't know the double meaning almost, isn't it? I mean, I think that was just uh, prescient, you know. I think it really was because... And I did actually text them actually at one point and say something like that. So I'm just like, you know, this kind of chimes during this time because particularly, you know, the, the bits in the bridge and stuff like that. I mean, it really, I mean, we've all got to do that. I'm all got to hold our heads up, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, eyes on the horizon and all that sort of stuff. You know? yeah, so, exactly. exactly. But it's odd when songs do that, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And, I, and it feels like. Paul seems to do that a lot. It's weird, like the sixth sense. It's all going on in the head, like you said. And we ought to also mention Paul Lefty Wright. Tell me about Paul Lefty Wright. <laughs> lefty. Paul Lefty Wright. Lefty is an amazing musician from Dundee. Right? He's an amazing musician from Dundee who is, I mean, he's a sitar player. Uh, he plays guitar like Jimi Hendrix as well. I mean, he's, I mean, he's kind of amazing and he's a total head as well. I mean, any conversation with Lefty can zip it out around the universe and stuff like that. I mean, he's, he's brilliant. Right? And he, we sent him, uh, the track that would become Glad Times. Obviously didn't tell him who it was for, right? Because he plays on various bits and balls for us and stuff like that. And he put down on that track, I mean, originally he played flute, he played uh, sitar on it as well, and he played this instrument called an estrage, which was new to me and new to Paul, actually, as well. It was like, I had to Google it, man, you know? So it's like a tiny wee Indian cello almost, you know, it's like a bold thing. And so that that was the bit that survived, you know? Because, I mean, the thing is, like, the loads of stuff went on that track and then was stripped back and stuff, like, much more than moving on I mean there was nothing really was stripped back but I mean man I mean we glad times it was fucking layers and layers and layers of stuff you know and then at that point it was step away I mean that's that's Stan and Paul's and Charles's job really you know so it's a shame actually you know because he did there was a couple of nice wee flute bits on it or whatever you know we should maybe do the lefty remix at one yeah, point right you know yeah. instrumental remix just sitar and flute and the esraj you know uh, but yeah I mean anybody wanting to check out lefty's music Paul lefty right I'm sure there's stuff up on um Spotify and stuff and also just go and buy vinyl off him right because he's made a couple of amazing records and stuff and it's a trip and we'll definitely be doing a lot more stuff with Lefty because he's ace brilliant love it love it love it you almost feel in a way that the last few albums we could already be at deluxe box set stage where we could have the other versions out you know by the sounds of things there are other mixes and things that they just constantly changing and stripping things back adding more layers oh totally yeah give it 10 years you know what I mean I'm sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow look, something to look forward to we should also mention your next release in 2021 Other Voices so the Voices theme continues Other Voices EP1 with the late great Bim Sherman on one track as well his stuff I discovered through On You Sound which I'm a big fan of as well that record label which is fabulous so tell me about how that came about and the story behind that release. Well, I mean, other voices. It, I mean, the idea with this was that we were going to do three EPs right, and then put them together as an album coming out next year. So the first one, other voices, one came out this summer. Being honest with you, we're now probably going to change the plan, just bloody put the album out. Because I thought to myself, right, if I'd bought three EPs from somebody and then they asked me to buy the album as well, with all the same tracks on it, I might feel conned. <laughs> so anyway, that was the first that were finished I mean the BIM track came about I mean obviously BIM died in 2000 and it all sort of ties back to that electric music album that I mentioned the one that I'd given Paul the vinyl and forgotten about right because mm. that track the BIM vocal is actually on that album and we're always meant to do something else with it basically a track that focused just on BIM's vocal and 
we didn't, you know this, we couldn't find it on the master tapes, we couldn't find it on any of the discs and stuff like that, his soloed vocals, so we sort of given up on the idea. And then last year, Ant discovered a bit of software uh, where you can put any mixed track in there and isolate the vocal, right? It can just process that, right? So there's a few versions of this out there now, but I mean, it would have really helped us for stolen voices and stuff. So we managed to get the uh, BIM vocal isolated and it's just such a beautiful melody. He's just ace, you know? The reason it had come about was because Ant did work. Ant was an engineer at On You Sound in the 90s. Oh, wow. So this is how, you know, so that's how he got to know BIM and then that's how we got to know BIM and BIM used to drop into our studio, Scabby Road to quite a lot actually and so we got him to do this vocal so it was really nice to actually do something that sort of honoured that vocal rather than just using it as a bit part and the other interesting thing about that track as well is there's these female vocals in that sound like the Supremes and this is an amazing programme that just came out uh, last year where you can actually type in lyrics for these backing vocalists now it's wildly hit and miss I mean wildly hit and miss but the track's called Do You Believe and as soon as I typed in Do You Believe and sort of messed around with the uh, phonetics and stuff like that I could sort of get it sounding as if it was like the Supremes singing Do You Believe right with uh, with Bim so it's almost like the ghost of Bim Sherman right and orchestrating the ghosts of the Supremes or something like that you know even though some of them of course are still with us but uh, yeah I mean that was an amazing track to do actually and I suppose it's is it indicative of all the stuff that we're doing I mean that one's sort of really dreamy soul track actually and then the the track that we did with Jill Laurian which is the opening track uh, Sleepwalking is more yet again back to that compass point sort of dub style thing so yeah I mean we're, we're working at the moment on finishing it all up and I think we'd, I mean, we're going to chat about it we might put another EP out before then or we might just put out the whole album as other voices you know so but oh, yeah it sounded awesome. cracking actually yeah yeah, yeah. quite no, exciting really nice. Really, I mean, I love his vocal and anything, but it was a real treat to, to find that and, and hear that. It was lovely. Um, and what's next for you guys with Paul? Is uh, I mean, he mentioned the fact that he'd like to work you do more music with you guys together. Have you talked about that? Do you know what's coming up? Well, I mean, if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Put it that no, way. <laughs> but you, you know, I have to ask, right? <laughs> yeah, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Yeah. This is the uh, are the jam getting back together question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's dead. Well, I mean, he's keen, and we're dead keen. You know. So yeah. I mean, he said some really lovely things about the two tracks that we've done together and stuff like that. And they've, they've both turned out great, actually, you know, and quite a surprise into us and stuff like that. But it's also, it's brilliant, you know, because, I mean, we'd kind of been operating in obscurity for a long time and Paul sort of plucking us out has kind of validated what we've done and given us, you know, a whole new turbo boost and stuff, you know. Yeah, I mean, for sure, we're dead keen to do more stuff and he seems to be keen as well. So let's just see where it goes. I mean, I think he's got a lot of touring to do, isn't he? You, know? you definitely get the feel from talking to people on the podcast who are working with him or have worked with him. But he, once he finds people he likes collaborating with, people like Erlen Cooper, Hannah Peel, the Stone Foundation, and gets on with, because that's obviously a really important part as well. It's like you're all having a laugh, you're enjoying each other's company too, that you want to continue that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it feels feels really natural and that's the thing I mean sometimes you can be banging your head against the wall trying to get stuff going you know I mean every every musician or writer or anybody like knows that sort of state when you're not doing that and when you can feel that it's just all flowing and stuff like that it's, it's definitely not to capitalise on that you know in whatever way you can because there's plenty of times when it goes away and you know I think uh, Paul said that to Noel Gallagher once didn't he you know if it goes away don't chase it and I think that that I mean Paul obviously knows he's on a real 
creative role at the moment. I wouldn't imagine that he would want to stop that or whatever. But I mean, he's gagging to get back on the road, I'm sure. I mean, he's got to be. I mean, that's a long time off the road for somebody who's, you know, spent all their life touring. And also for the fans and stuff like that as well. I mean, it's just, I mean, I've been to see two gigs in the last three weeks or whatever, and it was quite a strange experience, really. And I sort of forgot how much I'd missed it in a way. Mm. And that's with somebody with a lot of gigs in the tank as well. You know, I didn't miss it, actually, being honest with you, for about the first year, because I'd been to so many gigs down the years. But yeah, I mean, I think... That's got to be his priority at the moment, isn't it? Is getting back on the road and he loves it, doesn't he? You know, Scottish crowds are, I mean, Scottish crowds are ponto. Yeah, I've, heard, I've so, heard a lot about Barrowlands and what an experience that is, which sounds epic. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's many experiences, Barrowlands. I've got there in the one evening. <laughs> uh, Tom, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for joining me, my friend. Um, I've got two final questions for you. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council or Solo. Which one are you going to go with? I'm going to go back to Into Tomorrow. I think if I had one Weller track that I could only keep one, it would be that, just because it's such a driving tune. It reminds me of a great time so obviously you can hear the rebirth for him in that track as well I mean, it's what it's all about it always sounds killer live as soon as he starts playing that riff live you know what i mean your head's going you know so if i could keep one it would be that for sure love it love it and obviously the point of this podcast is to i mean yes it's to talk to lovely people like yourself but it's to get that interview with paul weller that i never managed during my radio career if it happens please god that it's going to happen at some point um what should i ask him what should i talk to him about you should probably say why the fuck did i have to start a podcast to get this interview with you right so that should be your first question follow-up question should be and what am i going to do now paul what am i going to do now that's a great question. You know, <laughs> what series? Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to can the whole podcast then if it's if you yeah. get the interview? I've not got any more ideas, my friend. It's about like back to your creativity <laughs> point, right? You got suddenly the pressure's on. What, what comes next? <laughs> I'm sure yourself. you'll get it, and I'm sure you'll think of another idea as well. Oh, you know? Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Tom, this has been so nice. Thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Brilliant. Cheers, Dan. It's been ace. Thank you. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Tom Doyle. Loved every second of that. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please do share on your social media channels. Help us to spread the word. You can get in touch on Twitter at at Weller Fan Pod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can also head to my website to find more information on Tom. I've put up loads of links to the music and articles that we talked about. You can also buy our exclusive pin badges. And if you'd like to buy me a virtual coffee, that would be lovely as well. Just go to paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.